Hey everyone, John Heilman here and welcome to Hell and High Water, my podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio with big ups to the one and only RZA for our dope theme music. Well, friends, Thanksgiving is upon us and I know everyone out there would much prefer to be focused on our tryptophan delivery systems than the delusions and depredations of Donald J. Trump. But alas, we are where we are. In the three weeks that have now passed since Election Day, Joe Biden's victory has grown more obvious and inarguable by the day, and yet the world has watched in amazement and horror as Trump has done what some of us predicted all along that he would do. Not merely complain that the election was rigged and refused to concede to Biden, but wage an insidious campaign to impugn the legitimacy of the American democratic process and remain in power by whatever means necessary. To get our heads around that campaign, its tactics and strategy, likelihood of wreaking havoc, and the damage it might do even in abject failure, I have roped into the pod today two old friends of mine with deep expertise and towering reputations at the nexus of law and politics. Two fellows who share the same august institution as their home base, and also, oddly enough, the same first name. Ish. First, the Roy L. Furman Professor of Law at Harvard Law School, former director of the Edmund J. Safra Center for Ethics at Harvard University, and founder of electoral reform nonprofit Equal Citizens, Lawrence Lessig. The state of the presidential election is almost over. I'm pretty confident nothing's going to blow up. And I'm pretty sure that on January 20th, we will see a new president in the White House. And second, the Carl M. Loeb University professor at Harvard Law School, co-founder of the American Constitution Society and author of the canonical treatise American Constitutional Law, Lawrence Tribe. The state of our democracy is in jeopardy. We have dodged quite a bullet this time, I think. I'm confident that Joe Biden will be inaugurated on January 20th, and I'm confident that Donald Trump will claim he is still the president from Mar-a-Lago or Avignon or wherever he sets up his alternative government. He will be reminding us that he is the real leader and that the 70 million people he has around him are people we have to take account of. It is no exaggeration to say that Lawrence Lessig and Lawrence Tribe are among the most important and influential legal minds of this or any era. The legal Larrys, as they are known to no one except me, are preeminent examples of a rare breed, genuine gold-plated academic superstars whose fame extends way beyond the Harvard Yard. Since its publication in 1978, Tribe's constitutional law treatise has been the most cited legal text in the English language, and he's appeared before the U.S. Supreme Court on 35 occasions. At the same time, Tribe is a familiar face in primetime on MSNBC and has more than a million Twitter followers. Lessig burst on the scene in the 1990s as a pioneer in the field of cyber law. As an advocate of remix culture, relaxing copyright restrictions and net neutrality, and the founder of Creative Commons. At the same time, when the West Wing wanted to toss a real-world legal celebrity into the mix, the show asked Christopher Lloyd, the iconic actor who played Jim Ignatowski on Taxi, and Doc Brown in Back to the Future, to portray Lessig in its sixth season. But what makes the legal Larry so pertinent to this moment isn't their academic bona fides or their outsized notoriety. What makes their voices so relevant and valuable right now is their passionate long-term engagement in the rough and tumble of practical politics and policy, and in particular, in white-hot controversies over contested elections. The most renowned of those in recent years is, of course, Bush v. Gore, the 2000 Florida recount in which Tribe was a key member of Vice President Gore's legal team, 
successfully arguing the initial case in federal court in Miami to keep the Florida recounts going. The case then handed over to David Boies to argue before the U.S. Supreme Court, and we all know how that turned out. As for Lessig, after running a quixotic long-shot campaign for the Democratic presidential nomination in 2016 that centered around campaign reform, he launched Equal Citizens, which took aim squarely at the Electoral College, including pursuing two cases that went all the way to SCOTUS this year, both of which Lessig lost, but that resulted in rulings that bear directly on what's taking place right now. Which is, in the view of many, nothing short of an attempted coup d'etat by the President of the United States. The headlines we have all been seeing in the past week or so suggest that's exactly what we are looking on before our very eyes. Trump wages full assault to overturn election. Trump targeting Michigan in play to subvert vote. A vindictive Trump seeks to undermine Biden presidency. Those headlines are grim, but they also suggest something else, that in state after state, from Pennsylvania and Michigan to Georgia, Arizona, and Nevada, the attempted coup is failing. Indeed, by the time you hear this podcast, the final vote tallies in most, if not all, of those states may well have been formally and officially certified, and those states' electors bound to affirm Joe Biden's win in the Electoral College in mid-December. The questions then for the legal Larrys is what to make of Trump and his accomplices' efforts. Are they genuinely scary or simply ridiculous or both? Do they stand any chance at all of being successful at this point? And even if they're bound to fail because the outcome of the election was not at all close and the aspiring autocrat in the Oval Office and his people are so screamingly incompetent, has this shit show revealed a truly disconcerting fragility at the heart of our democratic system? And what degree of damage are Trump's maneuvers inflicting even as we speak on our national discourse, the health of our common wheel, and any hope we might have of pulling this country together to address the massive challenges that we face. Those are, I'll admit, some pretty heady questions, questions way above my mental pay grade, which is why I am so pleased to have the ginormous brains of the legal Larrys, Lawrence Lessig and Lawrence Tribe, at our disposal today for maybe the most indispensable conversation that we've had so far in the brief life of Helen Highwater. Did you all watch My Cousin Vinny? You know the movie? It's one of my favorite uh, law movies because he comes from Brooklyn. And uh, when the, the nice lady who said she saw, and then he, uh, he, he says to her, how many f fingers do I, how many fingers do I got up? And she says, uh, three. Well, she was too far away to see it was only two. These people were further away than my cousin Vinny was from the witness. We cannot allow these crooks, because that's what they are, to steal an election from the American people. They elected Donald Trump. They didn't elect Joe Biden. Biden is in the lead because of the fraudulent ballots, the illegal ballots that were produced and that were allowed to be used after the election was over. Give us an opportunity to prove it in court, and we will. So that was... Uh Rudolph Giuliani on Tuesday at a rather extraordinary press conference that everybody in the world has now seen uh, extraordinary in a number of ways in terms of the things that were said and also the um, extraordinary performance art element of it with the black shoe polish or whatever it was streaming down his head and you know everything else. I've had relationships with both of you for a long time in in different ways, um, and I'm I'm thrilled to to have this conversation because there's literally no two people on planet Earth I'd rather hear talk about the immediate. Uh, challenges that we've been going through and the longer term implications of those challenges. So we're going to talk about all of that today. But I want to start coming out of that Rudy sound 
and ask you guys the big question that I think a lot of you know, smart Americans concerned for the, the country, both in the short and long term, are, are asking as they see headlines that say Trump is trying to nullify the election. Trump is trying to subvert the vote. Uh, Trump wages full assault to overturn election. These are the things we've been seeing on the front pages of the New York Times and the Washington Post last week. Without hyperbolizing or catastrophizing, are we watching in real time an attempted coup in the United States? We'll go alphabetically, Lessig before tribe, but I want to hear from both of you on that large question. Well, I don't think it's going to succeed, but absolutely. What we're watching is an effort by the president to get state legislatures to appoint an alternative slate of electors. And then when that alternative slate shows up with their votes on January 6th, he's counting on the vice president to act in ways that the law does not allow him to act to rule him and Trump into the presidency. That's what he's counting on. It won't work. And it won't work solely because we have enough Republican senators who signaled pretty clearly they're not going to allow it to work. But I think the scary thing is we have an infrastructure where it's conceivable that a game like this could be played. Uh, and that, I think, is our long-term challenge with, with the law. Professor Tribe. I agree with everything that Larry said. This is a, an attempted coup, nothing short of that. If by coup we mean an attempt to seize power not legitimately granted by the people of the United States. We're lucky that it's comical. We're lucky that it's so ineptly handled. Uh, we're lucky that pretty much all the decent, competent lawyers who at one point or another represented this president have jumped the ship and that he's left with clowns like, like Rudy Giuliani. He might as well have Borat um, representing him. That's luck, however, that may not hold. I mean, we, we have a system that's extremely frail, uh, from gerrymandering to the Electoral College. The whole system is set up to make it possible uh, to do crazy things of the sort that Trump is trying to do. And, Although at the moment I completely agree with Larry Lessing that it's not going to work. The only reason it's not going to work is that there are a few people around still, way too few uh, in the Republican Party who will not go along with the game. But the game is there. Um, and as a matter of fact, even though Joe Biden has won a massive victory in terms of popular votes, the largest popular vote margin since FDR in 1932, we shouldn't forget that his win in the Electoral College, and it's a decisive enough win, every bit as decisive as Trump's was in 2016 over Hillary Clinton, the shift of 45,000 votes in Wisconsin, Arizona, and Georgia would have given Trump 269 electoral votes to Biden's 269, and that would throw things into the House of Representatives where our crazy system is such that every state has one vote and where even though there are more Democratic representatives than Republican, there are 26 states that have a Republican majority delegation of representatives. Now, if that isn't crazy, tell me what is. And what's really sick and, and scary is that a lot of the people who are still enabling and supporting and speaking up on behalf of Trump believe what they say when they say that he won. 
They believe that by definition, democratic votes are illegitimate. Right. Not only the black and brown ones, but all of them. The only legitimate votes are the votes for Trump. And when you live in a world that says that by definition, the autocrat represents the will of the genuine people, that you are in worse than just autocratic territory, you're moving toward fascist territory. And the fact that we have a country that's veering on the edge of that is frightening. As often is the case when I speak to either of you in any setting, you both, uh, you come in hot and big at the outset, and then there's a lot to unpack. So we're going to unpack it. There's a lot in that. We'll start small and kind of build to bigger from that. Chris Krebs, the guy who was in charge of, of you know, one of the key election security officials who was fired by Trump for doing his job um, last week, among the many fucked up things that happened that have happened uh, in the last just just since the election. Chris Krebs tweeted out after watching that press conference, he said the press conference was the most dangerous hour and 45 minutes of television in American history and possibly the craziest. You know, you guys are big brains and go to the analytical and the historical and the contextual. Just as Americans watching that, I just, when I played the sound, I was watching you, Lessig, cringe on my Zoom camera. The notion that the president's lawyer, again, take away the comical elements and the gross elements of the shit streaming down the sides of his face. The stuff he's saying is bonkers and not just bonkers, but profoundly insidious um, that, that that has a national, that has an audience. He's up there saying, you know, not, not like we think we need recounts or we, we want to challenge this or challenge. It's like Donald Trump won this election. That's the message of Rudy Giuliani won this election. Biden committed systematic fraud. And the only reason that, that if we could go to court, we prove it. And the crazy thing about it is they've been to court 35 times and they've lost 33 of those cases in court. So it's just, he's gaslighting, gaslighting the country. And I just wonder what, as Americans watching that, what your, what your like human emotional citizens reaction was to seeing that guy on television saying that shit. The terrifying thing is, I don't know who Americans are anymore, right? The striking dynamic of uh, the period we've seen leading up to this election is an increasing bipolarization of quote, America. So you recount the headlines in the New York Times, even the Wall Street Journal, and you know the people who are reading the New York Times and Wall Street Journal, they know how to filter this and to adjust for this. The striking fact is there's a huge proportion of America who are con who, who's convinced that there was massive fraud here, that indeed the president did win, and that what we've seen here is an extraordinary conspiracy. And that's being fueled by a media infrastructure that profits from the craziness. You know, Larry and I can sit down and we can we can hack out what a new electoral count act looks like. We can talk about national popular vote. There are a lot of ways to fix the mechanics here, but the basic dynamic of America understanding politics is broken in a way that there's no obvious way we're going to fix it. Uh, and I think ultimately this is the biggest challenge we have. See, my reaction was awfully similar. I thought there have been times when I used to think when I would hear this crazy stuff, well, they're talking to an audience of one. They just want to avoid a dangerous tweet that might be the sort of the preview or the prequel of a dangerous primary, and they don't want to be fired by Trump or have, have uh, dangerous tweets sent at them. But what was scary about this was it wasn't an audience of one. 
I mean, he was not trying to avoid being fired by Donald Trump. He was talking to an audience of, at least he thought, 72 million. And what was scary is that many of those 72 million occupy the same reality, the same universe. I think of it as a fact-free universe that was animating Rudy Giuliani. Let me just come back to just where we stand right now. And we're taping this on a Saturday morning. People will be hearing this on Tuesday. Yesterday, you know, the, a number of things after these very scary headlines for a lot of people uh, on Thursday and Giuliani's press conference, we then see the, the pendulum swung back a little bit, right? You know, the Michigan uh, legislators went to the White House and then they walked out of the White House and said, you know what? You know, we, we heard the president out, whatever. We're sticking to our normal process and we haven't seen any reason to think that we're not going to certify our votes. Those votes, I believe, get certified early next week. Georgia yesterday certified uh, that Joe Biden has won Georgia, a big deal uh, in, in my lifetime. It's been since 1992, a Democrat won Georgia and it happened yesterday. And here's the Republican Secretary of State talking about his decision. This guy's been pretty strong. Um, let's listen to this dude. I'm a passionate conservative. And as I've said before, I'm a proud Trump supporter. I was with him early in the 2016 election cycle. And he's governed the nation by the same conservative principles that I hold dear. Like other Republicans, I'm disappointed our candidate didn't win Georgia's electoral votes. Close elections sow distrust. People feel their side was cheated. We saw this from the Democrats in 2018, and we see this from Republicans today. Working as an engineer throughout my life, I live by the motto that numbers don't lie. As Secretary of State, I believe that the numbers that we have presented today are correct. So that's Brad Raffensperger, the Secretary of State of Georgia, as he says there in a kind of kind of embarrassingly sycophantic partisan, or you could say maybe strategic partisan preamble saying, I love Donald Trump. I've always loved Donald Trump. He did a great job, but the numbers are the numbers and I'm sticking to the numbers. He also, I will say, is the one who let people know that Lindsey Graham called him on the phone and, and tried to tried to get him to discount whole whole wide swaths of votes uh, on the basis of no good legal basis. So that guy's been, I wouldn't say a hero, but he's doing his job, you know, and in this environment, a Republican doing his job deserves at least a little pat on the back, right? A bunch of good news yesterday. As you looked around the states, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Georgia, Arizona, we're seeing signs that to go back to the top of what you guys are saying, which is this is a scary thing, an attempted coup, but why do we not think it's going to work? We think it's not going to work because the structure seem to be holding, the guardrails seem to be intact, and there are enough Republicans out there like Brad Raffensperger who are kind of basically saying, I'm going to do my job and not go down with Trump. Is that not right? Do you guys, seeing these incremental things, which is how this works, right? Individual states certifying the counts. This is part of, I think, what informs your sense as we sit here this morning that these systems are fragile and, and, and more fragile than we thought, but that we're going to be okay here as we start to see how it's actually playing out state by state and people are resisting Trump's coercion, et cetera, et cetera. Is that a fair assessment of where we are? Absolutely. I mean, especially after Raffensperger spoke, Brian Kemp, very partisan Republican governor yep. uh, of Georgia, made it clear that he would have no part in a coup that would try to steal Georgia's votes, where Biden beat Trump by something like 14,000, and where the recount, as recounts are invariably going to do, just made a tiny marginal difference, didn't shift the result enough uh, to move the needle. 
that was good news. And when these Michigan guys uh, sort of left the White House and said, no, we've heard the president out, but no thanks, uh, that was good news, although they don't deserve to be given a hero award. The very fact that they accepted the invitation and allowed themselves the luxury of being in the Klieg lights and having maybe their only Oval Office visit ever when they had some leverage over a sitting president, yeah. you know, they shouldn't have succumbed to that temptation. They basically should have said, no, thanks. We're, we're staying home. We don't we don't want a chance to to have our arms twisted. But there was good news in the sense that the guardrails did hold. No, no question that there were important guardrails that held. And certainly those courts, I mean, when you mentioned that only two minor and procedural and more or less irrelevant victories and 33 or something like that losses in court for the Trump team, those things are encouraging. And we have a democracy or a semi-democracy that does have some structures that we need to rely on. We can't just say it's it's all, you know, it's all gossamer. Uh, we don't have any architecture to rely on. I'm, I'm grateful for that. You know, it's almost Thanksgiving and those are among the things I give thanks for. Okay, I agree with all that. But let's remember that the theory, the plan that they've always been talking about um, from the very beginning, indeed before the election, never really doubted that that would happen. What they assumed is that they would be able to persuade legislatures to assert something that Larry and I both agree is a crazy theory, but to assert the theory that they have a constitutional right to appoint a slate of electors after an election, contrary to the electors selected by the voters. They think they have that power. Mark Levin tweeted that, you know, extraordinary all caps tweet out where he said, get ready to do your constitutional duty. Um, a bunch of us started writing about that. Then he had me on his radio show and he ran away from that very quickly. He said, no, 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 that's not what I was actually meaning. I wasn't saying that they could appoint another slate of electors, but the point is their theory is they have the right under the constitution to appoint a slate of electors, even if they disagree with the vote of the people. And that alternative slate, given the vice president is Donald Trump's vice president, could play games to make that alternative slate work. I don't think it will happen. I don't think they've created the conditions that would require right. that would be necessary, but that was the theory. Okay, hold that thought because I, this is what I want to go deeper on and I want to I want to take a quick, very quick break, pay some bills on this podcast and then we'll come back and go deep on the elector on the faithless elector strategy because I think you're right, Larry. There's a lot to say about this. So let's take a break uh, and we'll be back in a minute with the legal Larrys on Hell and High Water. No state legislature in our country's history ever has done what Donald Trump is apparently agitating for the Michigan state legislature to do, which is to ignore the results of a popular vote election and wrest control from the voters or attempt to wrest control from the voters and appoint their own slate of electors to send to Washington. Now, the reason it's never happened before is that it cannot be done. Uh, the Constitution does not permit a state legislature to do what Donald Trump wants the Michigan state legislature to do. The state legislature has already prescribed the manner in which the electors in 2020 were to be chosen, and that is through the popular vote. They cannot, after the fact, turn around and change those rules retroactively. It's an abuse of office. It's an open attempt to intimidate election officials. Uh, it's absolutely appalling. 
actually in the context of all these losses and the record of failure that I just described, it's also pathetic. But having said all of that, it will be unsuccessful. On the one hand, this is really very harmful to the democratic process and it naturally troubles people a great deal. On the other hand, it's doomed to failure. So that's Bob Bauer, the, the most badass of Democratic election lawyers, um, former White House counsel and someone who's worked um, at worked for Kerry as, uh, as, as general counsel, Obama as general counsel in 2008, now is like the special counsel was on, on, on election security and vote protection for uh, for the Biden campaign and is uh, was has been absolutely resolute throughout about the readiness of the Biden team to take on any attempts to, to try to uh, pervert or subvert the democratic process to protect votes, et cetera, et cetera. And I'll, I'll point out, I did an interview with him on the circus in October, and he was very reassuring to a lot of people. And it was interesting to me in retrospect, as, he, as Bob sat there and said, you know, if there are militias who show up at the polls, we will deal with that. If the president tries to impound ballots in, in Dade County, we will deal with that. We have ways to keep these things from happening. And in truth, until this moment, if you think about the way the election actually played out, a lot of the things people were afraid of happening in the early vote period and on election night didn't happen. You know, the militias didn't show up. And the president didn't try to impound ballots. And there were you know, a lot of theories about things that might happen. And I'm not trying to say none of, any of that takes away our concerns about what's happening now or about the future. But I will say that some of the things that people were paranoid about did not transpire. And the election was a pretty clean, well-ordered, well-run thing, which is part of why we are where we are right now. Because having done nine election cycles, I think I saw fewer reports on election day of irregularities than, than you normally see on election day in a given election. So I say all of that to ask you guys, and you mean Bauer very, I think you guys agree with him, obviously, but I want to drill down on this electors thing because when Bart Gelman wrote about it in the Atlantic in October, September, it like lit everybody up and was like, okay, wait, wait, what? The, the electoral college, wait, what happens if you don't concede the electoral college, which is normally a formality and perfunctory that becomes an arena of contest? And then I had... Steve Bannon telling me that he and Rudy were working on this strategy, that if Trump lost, they were going to run this play, which is the play they've been running. So I want you guys to talk about it. First, just step back to Bush v. Gore. Both of you, Tribe, you worked on that case. Lessig, you have thought about that case a lot. Just talk about the historical, the predicate for this, like what Bush v. Gore, which is the only other really contested presidential election most of us have lived through. Um, what, is, what does Bush v. Gore tell us about how how this all works, and then let's step forward into why this was a genuine threat if the election maybe had been closer and there had been maybe a little bit more irregularity, why we could be in a much more dangerous situation than we actually are right now. You know, there's a single uh, two sentences in the opinion of Bush v. Gore that create all of this problem. This is not the faithless electors problem. This is the faithless legislature, legislature's problem. This was the majority. This wasn't Chief Justice Rehnquist's opinion. It says the state, of course, after granting the franchise in the special context of Article 2, can take back the power to appoint electors. And then it cites a Senate report from 1874, quote, there is no doubt of the right of the legislature to resume the power at any time for it can neither be taken away nor abdicated. It's those two sentences that are the basis of a theory that says at any time means before the election or after the election. So after the election, we can reclaim the power just like we could have done before the election. 
And it's that that got them going. But that is fundamentally mistaken if what it means is that after an election, you can recall the power. And the reason for that is another part of the Constitution, which gives Congress the power to say when the electors are appointed. And Congress said that. It said November 3rd is the day the electors are appointed. And so after November 3rd, you can't, consistent with Congress's rule, appoint another slate of electors. So this sentence, you know, written in opinion that was written over the course of 48 hours by people who are not sleeping for the last two weeks, is just wrong. But that mistake is what fueled Steve Bannon and everybody else into this crazy constitutional crazy land that we find ourselves in right now. Well, finally, I found something I can slightly disagree with. Larry. Oh, good, good, good. <laughs> I certainly agree that that sentence was misleading and is the source of part of the Bannon-Giuliani fantasy. But there was another sentence, and it's one that I have seared in my memory because I argued the first of the two Bush v. Gore cases. And in that case, which I hasten to add, we didn't lose. There was a nine to nothing decision by the Supreme Court that sent the case back to the highest court of Florida to explain what that court was doing in order to comply with Article 2 of the Constitution. It was the second argument that I had nothing to do with, although I wrote the brief, the argument that David Boies gave, and I think blew. Uh, it was that argument that led to the 5-4 decision stopping the counting. But the thing that really sticks in my craw is the sentence from the Rehnquist concurrence in the ultimate Bush v. Gore decision, where Rehnquist basically floats the idea that the state legislature is a kind of free-floating body, floating free of state law out of the state constitution, and that if the state legislature, as an entity, decides to simply appoint a bunch of electors, then that, no pun intended, trumps whatever the law of the state might have otherwise provided. And in fact, it's incoherent in the sense that the state legislature, when it performs the role of selecting a manner for the appointment of the electors, is performing a lawmaking function. If it were true in general that state legislatures are not bound by the law of the state, then all kinds of mischief could be done. So, so, and so, so, happily, that's so, not the law. So I agree, I agree that there's this, let's call it the superpower theory of legislatures that Chief Justice Rehnquist articulated and that Kavanaugh now has reinforced. And I agree with Larry, that's not a correct interpretation of our constitution. The challenge though, is that, um, you know, let's take a very clear case. Colorado has a constitution that says that the people get to pick the electors. There shall it be a vote, and the vote shall determine the electors. The passage I quoted from the 1874 Senate report um, was explicitly addressing that question. If a state constitution purported to constrain how electors are selected, could the state legislature ignore that constitution? And the argument there was, yeah, because the power to pick electors is given from the federal constitution. And so that, that, I think, is like what gets them going. I agree it's an extension that Chief Justice Rehnquist made to say you have to look at the text versus the interpretation of that text. That's kind of crazy and even crazier where we are right now. But I think the important thing to realize is 
all of that craziness, like that kind of law geek-like complication, we can box up and set to one side. Because I think we both agree that even if you think there are these superpowers, there is, number one, a power that says Congress gets to say when electors are picked. And Congress did. It was November 3rd. And number two, this is the part that I think is really interesting about the case about the um, electors. You know, in that case, the, whether electors could be faithless, what the court said unanimously is that, you know, even if originally electors had a discretion to vote one way or the other, democracy has overtaken it. Democracy now means the electors have to do what the people say. Right. Well, that principle applied to legislatures should be applied to legislatures a fortiori, because we know the framers didn't want state legislatures to pick the president. That was the nightmare right. that they imagined. There would be bargaining for who would be president based on you know, who would get funding from the federal government. I mean, that was the disaster they were avoiding. So if electors aren't free to ignore the will of the people, neither are legislatures free to ignore the will of the people. They are constrained in the same way, and that's why even if there's this weird question about superpowers and legislatures, it doesn't matter now. Can I, let me add, I agree very much with that. And I would add that when the Constitution really does contemplate having state legislatures directly appoint people, it does have to say that. That is, that's the way it was set up for the senators. It was state legislatures who selected the senators. And no similar provision in the Constitution says state legislatures select the electors. It says that they designate the manner by which the electors are going to be to be chosen. Right. And in the 17th Amendment, we got rid of that anomalous thing where the state legislatures would directly appoint U.S. senators. You know, given where we are, all of the stuff you guys just said, which I find because I'm a not an actual law geek, but I occasionally play one on TV. And, and part of the way that I have come to know both of you is by pretending to actually be more legally savvy than I actually am. So I dig all that discussion. But I have two questions that like normal people will want to have answered. One of which is like, so we have some dates on the calendar. We have December 8th for the certification. We have December 14th when the Electoral College uh, votes. We then have January 6th. Uh, when at the congressional level, the ratification of the Electoral College is supposed to take place. Do you guys, as you sit here today, seeing where we're headed with certifications, seeing the extent to which the Trump team has both failed and flailed at trying to execute this strategy of, of you know, not challenging the counts anymore, but trying to challenge certifications and then trying to play the, the Electoral College game. Do you guys, as you look down the calendar at those dates, do you feel pretty confident now? I know you've said at the highest level you're confident that Joe Biden's going to end up being president of the United States and that he's going to be inaugurated on January 20th. But do you look at either any of those dates I just laid out and go, things are going to be a little fucking hairy here, guys. Everybody like buckle up because there's going to be some more gamesmanship, some more stuff that's going to make normal citizens who are who care about the future of the country, care about the democracy. Are you guys, should people buckle up and get ready for for more bullshit here, or are we are this going to kind of now are we past the worst part of turbulence? I think the worst part is past, and I think December fourteenth will go smoothly. I'm a little worried about January sixth because on January sixth, with sort of coward Pence, as cowardly a vice president as we've ever had, with him presiding, there may be objections to counting the electors from Pennsylvania, from Georgia, from any number of states. You need 
both a member of the House and a member of the Senate to make an objection. If an objection is made, the Constitution is pretty ambiguous, and the Electoral Count Act suggests that the decision of the governor of the state to which an objection is made uh, will have been decisive if the electoral slate was chosen by the safe harbor date of December 8th. But imagine a desperate president on his way out, if he hasn't arranged already to resign before uh, January 14th and maybe be pardoned by a new President Pence, I can still imagine them trying to mess things up on the count date of January 6th. So I, I would say that I'm going to be uh, sleeping happily if on December 14th there's not alternative slates that cast their ballots. That has to happen for the alternative slates to matter. They have to have met and cast their ballots in these separate states. And if in no state does that happen, then I'm going to be confident. Because if that hasn't happened, then in order to discount certified results, and these will all be certified within the safe harbor, you've got to say that either the, the contest proceeding in the state is not completed, which in all of these cases it will be, or it was not completed within six days of the electoral vote, in all of these cases it will be, or that the votes of the electors were not regularly given, which is not the votes of the people, but the votes of the electors. And in all of these cases, they will be regularly given. And if the safe harbor applies and they apply the law, they act the way the law tells them, the only way to overturn the safe harbor is if both houses vote to overturn the safe harbor. If the safe harbor doesn't apply, then we get into this game of, well, we've got multiple slates, which slates matter, and that's the one signed by the governor. And fortunately, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan um, are three Democratic governors. So the Democratic slate will be signed, regardless of whether there's a Republican slate. In Georgia and Arizona, there's a Republican governor. And those, of course, won't be enough to change the result, but that's, that's where this complexity of signing um, is going to matter. But they have to have voted on December 14th, and if they don't know that and they don't do that, right. then uh, there's nothing you can do when it comes to the final vote. There's still a lot of people out there who say, who are worried in a, in a free floating way. Is there not some way that the U.S. Supreme Court could still get in the middle of this and fuck this up? Like, that's just a thing you hear on the street all the time. It's like people think Kavanaugh's corrupt. They don't necessarily think that much about Gorsuch, but they think Kavanaugh's corrupt. They worry about Amy Coney Barrett because of the way in which she was chosen and the explicit intentions that Donald Trump enunciated, um, which is that I want to get this woman on the court right now because I want to have a majority. You know, I want to. I got to have nine. I got to have it. I got to have a. I got to have this justice on in case there's election-related disputes that go before the court. Are we now safe on that front? That given the way things, the facts have played out, and the way in which reality has unfolded, that the U.S. Supreme Court is unlikely to have a role in any conceivable, plausible scenario going forward? Or is there still something, if you want to be worried about the court, its composition and its politicization, that there's still some scenario in which the court could intervene to uh, thwart the will of the people here? I'm not worried about that. I do tend to worry about almost everything. I agree with everything Larry Lessig said about the, about the law, uh, but I do worry that the law will not always prevail. I mean, after all, the law didn't prevail in successfully removing a lawless president who should have been removed long since after he was impeached. But I am not worried that these lawyers will suddenly wake up one morning and say, well, there's no real case that's made its way before us, but I think we're going to have 
Biden for lunch and we're going to gobble him up. <laughs> I, it's just not going to happen. And despite my penchant for worry, that doesn't worry me. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, we want to think of these as sensible people. It would be a disaster for the institution if in the face of a six million majority victory by Joe Biden and a clear yeah. electoral college, they, they step in and do something. What scares me is like, what is their source of media? I don't know if you remember in the Obamacare case, Justice Scalia, for whom I clerked, and when I, I clerked early in his uh, tenure, I had enormous respect for him. But Justice Scalia asked about the Hoosier Amendment. And the Hoosier Amendment didn't exist. There was no Hoosier Amendment. But it was something <laughs> that was being discussed on Fox News all the time. So, so they were Holy talking about the fuck. Hoosier Amendment from Fox News. And the lawyers, as this question is asked, is like, do I, do I just say, Justice, you haven't read the briefs, you've been listening to Fox News. And so I'm, you know, the only source of anxiety is if they're living in the, in, it's not even Fox anymore, whatever the bubble is, but if they're living in that right. bubble, maybe they've been convinced too, that there's this massive conspiracy and C Cousin Vinny has got to step up and, and do his work. And, but I think it's very low. I think some people will now breathe. Uh, I'm thinking of very particular people in my life will breathe a little bit easier to think that somehow the U.S. Supreme Court cannot get in the middle of this. And that's uh, so we're going to leave that on an optimistic note. We're going to take a break, play some more advertisements, and then we're going to come back and talk about the future and what we can do to prevent, if we, if possible, prevent some of the nightmare scenarios that we've seen here. I mean, I continue to think that part of our what, what we've been very lucky, we were lucky in the sense that the Biden victory was large, not large in a landslide sense, but large in popular vote and margins that don't look anything like Florida in 2000 in the key states. And the Trump team is totally fucking incompetent. And the combination of those two things has left us safe. But, you know, the future might have other scenarios, tighter margins and more competent autocrats. And then we got some fucking problems. So let's talk about that after we get to the other side of these commercials. This is stunning, heartbreaking, infuriating, and the most unpatriotic acts I can even imagine for people in this country to have participated in, in any way, shape, or form. And I want the American public to know right now that we will not be intimidated. American patriots are fed up with the corruption from the local level to the highest level of our government and we are going to take this country back we are not going to be intimidated we are not going to back down we are going to clean this mess up now president trump won by a landslide we are going to prove it and we are going to reclaim the united states of america for the people who vote for freedom so that's sydney powell right another of the president's lawyers if possible someone both crazier and more pernicious than Rudy Giuliani, but someone who was like a totally upstanding, like considered serious member of the Washington legal community until like just the last couple of years. And I play it because I do want to talk about the future here, because that is to me something we've alluded to earlier in the podcast, but this is part of the salting the earth problem here. Even if Trump fails, as we are all convinced on this, like that doesn't mean that the damage being done in this period is not profound. There was a Monmouth poll this week that says 77% of Trump voters, and we know 
that number of voters is is climbing every day. It's more, 12 million more than he got in 2016. 73 million people voted for Donald Trump. 77% of them, according to this poll, think that Joe Biden won because of fraud. And every day that Sidney Powell and Rudy Giuliani and Donald Trump stand up and say the kind of shit Sidney Powell just said in that audio clip is another day that another Trump voter goes, you know what? Yeah, Joe Biden's not a legitimate president. So this is a big in a already polarized, already bitterly partisan country, this is a big fucking problem for a president who, whatever you think about Joe Biden, his strengths and weaknesses, the reason he got 80 million votes in the end is because he appealed to unity and trying to get back to normal and try to pull people together and be the president for all people, not just the people who voted for him, all the stuff normal presidents say. But how do you do that in this environment when 77% of the 73 million Believe what Sidney Powell just said or some version of what Sidney Powell just said. So I am i don't want to be a ranter here. I'm, that was my one rant for this podcast. But I, it is it set tees up this last part of our discussion. And I want to ask you guys, what does Joe Biden do? And what do we all do in the face of that? This is birtherism 2.0. This is the same strategy that Donald Trump used in you know the Obama administration. It's to discredit the president and make people think he's not entitled to be president. And that's what's going to happen here again. And the question is how long it sticks. I think it you know, was really significant for Obama because of an underlying racism um, that you know, this fueled and confirmed. Joe Biden, it might be different. If Joe Biden comes in and does some pretty profound and important things right away and the world begins to look better, maybe people will relax in the assumption that this was illegal and maybe they come back. But I'm terrified if they don't because we can't afford a government that can't govern. We can't go on like this. We can't have perpetual stasis. I mean, everybody talks about how the stock market loves the, the divided government. Why does the stock market love that? Because they know the government can't do anything. They can get away with doing whatever they want. And so therefore, the profits will be through the roof for them, but not for America. We need a government that can govern and the outrageousness. I mean, you know, the first part of what Sidney said, I, I certainly would say the same thing predicated of her, the outrageousness of yeah. sowing this dissent and skepticism about our basic democracy is really inconceivable. I never would have expected it 10 years ago, and yet here it is. I believe if there's anything that I will be remembered for in the Trump era is for fra- if we're coming up with the phrase that everything Trump says is either projection or confession. And, and that Sidney Powell clip was a classic of the genre. Yes. Everything she said was projection yes. there. Every single thing was projection. And you listen to her talk about how unpatriotic the whole thing is. And I'm like, yes, very unpatriotic what's going on here. You crazy. Don't say it. Yes. I'm not going to. <laughs> Don't worry. So what I would add is that they are not only undermining faith in democracy and persuading more and more of their followers that they were all knifed in the back and that they are victims and that they should be getting back at liberals and Democrats and black and brown people and, and you name it. That's only part of the problem. The other part of the problem is that they're salting the earth on their way out. I mean, look at the way in which they are delaying the transition, which will make it much harder for a Biden administration to make full use of the Defense Production Act get all of the vaccinations done that need to be done, really deal with COVID, make people's lives better. Unless we are amazingly lucky in the, in the elections in Georgia for Ossoff and Warnock, 
the Senate runoffs, yeah. Unless we're amazingly lucky, we're going to have Mitch McConnell to deal with. Yep. And we're going to have all of these landmines that they have left on their way out. You know, it's worse than just stealing the silver from the White yeah. House on your way out. It's planting landmines, setting fires, slowing things down. So the ability of Biden to do what he would need to do in order to create some kind of move toward a rapprochement, making people's ask. lives better, making their lives safer, dealing with with underfunded schools, with unpaid teachers, with with collapsed hospitals. His ability to do that is undermined by what they're doing on their way out. So there's three things on the table, right? One is the Presidential Transition Act of 1963. We now all know Emily Murphy, the woman at the General Services Administration who refuses to uh, acknowledge that Joe Biden is an apparent winner. I put quotes around that and in, and do what she's supposed to do, grant the ascertainment, uh, ascertaining that he is the apparent winner and releasing all the, the funds and the structural stuff that has to happen to get the transition going. She's got friends in the press saying she's just following orders. Trump has said he doesn't want to transition. She's got to listen to Donald Trump. The press secretary says, no, it's got nothing to do with us. She's got full authority over there, right? So... Can we fix that? It seems a little fucked up to me that like this a single person sitting in the GSA can be holding up our our transition in this way. How do we fix that going forward? Well, for, if she were sued now for an injunction or a writ of mandamus, it would be a very well-grounded lawsuit because there's no universe in which one can say that Biden is not at least the apparent winner. But the trouble is that defendants would argue that a decision should be put on hold because it would be irreversible if we were to release the transition funds. And even though that's kind of a silly argument and the balance of harms is overwhelming in terms of life and death, overwhelming that she should be forced to comply with the act, I can see that litigation going on way too long to make it worthwhile, which is at least apparently where the Biden legal team is at the moment, although I'm sure I know that they've not taken anything off the table. If the act were to be rewritten to create a more mechanical trigger, it's not customary to write a law in terms of reference to the mainstream media, but basically once all of the main media outlets have declared someone the winner, that should be enough to make them the apparent winner. There is a definitional problem, you know, what is included, what isn't in, in the normal legitimate media but the law i think needs to be written in a way that leaves no room for this kind of groundless and ir irreparably harmful delay and there are a lot of other laws that need to be rewritten along the way i mean there are all sorts of ways in which a post-trump era like the post-nixon era can lead to a rewrite of a number of the laws that now are much too squishy to be meaningfully enforceable and i think that should be done the other thing, obviously, that, that I think that all of this raises for many people is the defect of the Electoral College, something that there's been more discussion of. I think Lessig and I used to, you and I started talking about this maybe now almost 20 years ago at San Francisco Giants games, and we would sit around and talk about this. And I would say to you in my knowing way, Larry, this fucking structural stuff like campaign finance reform is never going anywhere. Um, it's never going to change. And I still have profound doubts about how much traction it can get. However, it's now starting to feel like a world where you can win the popular vote by 6 million or lose the popular vote by 3 million 
and still have 306 electoral votes is a little fucking confusing. And a lot of people are starting to wake up to that and go, this is a little hinky. First of all, in general, we've had a lot of minority people who haven't won the popular vote in recent time. We've now got the expo- it's exposed in a weird way just how rickety and weird the Electoral College is. And then with this discussion of electors that we've just been having, faithless electors, faithless legislatures, there does seem to actually be some more kind of grassroots energy around reforming the Electoral College. So I'd like to ask the two of you, you know, the what you would like to see happen. The National Popular Vote Compact is the thing that's out there right now, which for people who don't know is states agreeing that they would give their electoral votes without abolishing the Electoral College, they would give their electoral votes to whoever wins the national popular vote. There are 15 states and DC that have agreed to that. There are five more states where it's pending. If all of them agreed to it, you'd have 20 states with 294 electoral votes and it would be game over if that's constitutional, which I do not know. So I'd like you guys both to talk about the future of the Electoral College. Do we need to scrap it? How should we get around it? What's the like way forward here to make our democracy work so that like, you know, the person who gets the most votes wins? Yeah, I mean, there were- Larry, if you start, you're going to never stop because you know more about this than anybody. But go ahead. <laughs> um, I'll try to stop. Um, so, yes. People argued in favor of the Electoral College for many years that it was stabilizing, that it would amplify victories, and that the reason not to change was because otherwise we'd have all this instability. We've now had two elections where there was a clear popular winner, and we're arguing about 45,000 votes. Um, And so I think that whole argument in favor of the status quo is disappeared. The strongest alternative is the National Popular Vote Compact. I was on a conference call, uh, a Zoom call with 1,200 people on Thursday who were Republicans and Democrats organizing to bring this about. I think there's a really solid chance it will happen. I think that the constitutional status of it has been reinforced by the decision about faithless electors. I think the faithless electors decision is basically democracy rules. And they get to say, the legislature gets to say how democracy rules. And the legislature can say, we want to select electors to confirm the, the winner of the national popular vote. People have made good points about the structural stability of the national popular vote compact. And it's the problem because we don't have one election, we have 51 elections. And the rules for those 51 elections are different. So what if California says everybody 14 and over can vote? You know, what will other states think about that? But I think what's really important about the emerging consensus, as you say, one person, one vote consensus, is both that we all think we should have one person, one vote, and also a system where a tiny number of states, the swing states, get 99% of the attention of candidates is just crazy. It's just crazy. We shouldn't outsource the choice of our president to these nine states. And, And whether we'd get a national popular vote compact or we just allocate electors proportionally at a fractional level, both of those solutions will solve the swing state problem. And I think that's the critical problem we have to figure out how to solve. I have thought those things for almost 50 years. I'm old enough to say that. I think, John, you sat through my con law class, right? And I I don't remember, it was the same one that Barack Obama was in, right? It was. And I don't remember if I included the Electoral College that time, but I know what I thought. I've thought it was always crazy, all the arguments for it, including the ones that Larry has just knocked down never really made sense to me. It's an anomaly, a terrible anomaly. And I'm very, I of course want a a consensus to emerge, to either get rid of it entirely or as a second best to replace it with the national 
popular vote compact, which I'm afraid the current court might strike down, but that's a different topic, or to at least not have a winner-take-all rule. But again, you couldn't impose that on states unless there were some amendment to the Constitution or the analog, because some states, you know, states are not going to voluntarily reduce their collective power. But the one person, one vote idea is so central throughout the world. It ought to command enough consensus. If we could have a national referendum, there'd be no problem. And certainly, if we could have the winner of the majority of the votes in the popular vote become the president, we would end up without all of these cliffhangers in a couple of key states. Everything would be better. The trouble is how to get there from here, how to convince people that their collective interest in their identity as parts of a state rather than as individual citizens shouldn't override the overwhelming imperative to get rid of this terrible potential nuclear weapon under our system. I couldn't agree more. And yes, you did talk about it in that con law class in 19, I believe, 90 or 89, 90 or 89, one or the other, but you did talk about it. And it was clear. It was one of the first person I ever, one of the first people I ever heard say that they thought the Electoral College was, was nuts was you. Um, here's my last question for you. And honestly, this is a thing that just is on, it, it, it's, it gets to the legal and, and, and tribe use, like flicked at it, um, because I do think it's a thing that everybody is thinking about. So the end game here for Donald Trump, the legal end game. And I think, you know, when we see him doing what he's doing now, there are many theories. But here's the one that I think is a thing that people are now focusing on more. And the reason I know it is because a famous movie actor put up a, a thread yesterday. Ed Norton put up this, uh, this thing yesterday and really, I mean... <laughs> Not many of our tweets have have the um, amount of traffic this this thread put up. So Norton Ed Norton puts up this thing. He says, I'm no political pundit, but I grew up with a dad who was a federal prosecutor, and he taught me a lot. And I've also sat a fair amount of poker with serious players. And I'll say this. I do not think Trump is trying to make his base happy or lay the groundwork for his own network or that chaos is what he loves. The core of it is that he knows he is in deep, multidimensional legal jeopardy. And this defines his every action. We are seeing, one, a tactical delay of the transition to buy time for cover-up and evidence suppression. Two, above all, a desperate endgame, which is to create enough chaos and anxiety about peaceful transfer of power and fear of irreparable damage to the system that he can cut a Nixon-style deal in exchange for finally conceding. But he doesn't have the cards. His bluff after the flop has been called in court. His turn card bluff will be an escalation, and his river card bluff could be really ugly. But they have to be called. We cannot let this mobster bully the USA into a deal to save his ass by threatening our democracy. That is his play, but he's got junk in his hands, so let's call him. And then he goes on. But this notion that this is what this is about, that Trump is, has multi, as, as Norton puts it, multidimensional legal jeopardy and is trying to, he's plan to try to cut a deal. You mentioned the pardon thing. Uh, tribe about he resigns, Pence becomes president, he gets the pardon. That obviously still leaves the state investigations and the state charges out there. So I'd like to hear both of you guys just talk about this, about Trump's legal jeopardy and the extent to which you think some of the things he's doing now are part of some kind of a strategic play to try to limit his legal liability, if not remove it entirely. I think that's part of the play. He, he knows that he can't use a federal pardon to get out from under Letitia James and Cy Vance, that is the Manhattan DA and the Attorney General of New York. He knows those charges are out there, 
but he probably believes that if he can sow enough chaos, make everything unstable enough, that he can work some kind of global deal in which Letitia James and Cy Vance are pressured by Biden to go along with something in which he is sort of marginalized and goes away more quietly. I don't think it's going to succeed because I think each of them has their own political program. I don't see how the state authorities can be worked into a deal. He might try to pardon himself. There are those of us who believe that would be unconstitutional, but that doesn't mean that the current court would not give effect to that pardon if he were prosecuted. He's also, I think, trying to build on the reluctance of President-elect Biden to be vindictive and to go after him. Biden says quite rightly that he would leave it to an independent Department of Justice. He's not going to call the shots the way Trump has through his puppet Barr, or it's not clear who's whose puppet, but <laughs> basically Barr is not independent of Trump. And the fact, however, that he knows that Joe Biden is not going to sort of go after him vindictively doesn't mean that he doesn't have something to gain by making it look like the world is so unstable and so fragile that for an independent Justice Department to go after him for his really serious federal offenses, including obstruction of justice, would be scary to the incoming administration and that therefore he might get away with less jeopardy than otherwise. But certainly avoiding that orange jumpsuit or its equivalent is part of what drives him, part of what makes him want to remain in power. He certainly can't enjoy the presidency itself. You know, it's just an excuse for golfing. Yeah, um, bad acts have to have consequences. There has to be consequences for what's happened. And I agree Biden shouldn't make this his cause, but he shouldn't stand in the way. And even if they play the pardon game, then it's up to New York. Because, you know, this man has 50 million Americans who believe he's God. And if he can afford to continue to play the game that he's playing, uh, he will continue to produce disruption and chaos in American politics for the next four years at least. So I, I think, you know, there's so many dimensions on which he is in jeopardy. Um, I think they all have to play out with the consequence that nobody thinks that it makes sense to be a kind of politician that Donald Trump was. And that if they think that they're going to play the Donald Trump game, they understand what the consequences for that game will be. If we don't get that, then I'm really terrified about what happens over the next four years. Especially because there will be smarter autocrats yes. in the future. Yes. yes. I, I really think that if he can get away with this, um, mm. that we have much greater difficulties ahead. Well, you think about the Mueller, the Mueller probe you know, in which Mueller accepted the notion you can't indict a sitting president, you know, and that the premise of that was always, but you know, there will be legal consequences if you commit crimes for after, right? If you, if the premise was you couldn't indict a sitting president and that changed how the Mueller probe was prosecuted, so to speak, and how it played out. And then on the backside, you also give the guy a free pass. It seems like you really are at that point. You're saying the president is above the law. And if the president's above the law, then we are fucked. And I, and I do think, you know, the, the Norton thing ends with him saying, uh, you know, his contemptible, treasonous, seditious assault on the stability of our political compact isn't about 2024, personal enrichment or anything else other than trying to use chaos and a threat. So the foundation of the system has leveraged a trade for a safe exit. Call his bluff. Faith in the strength of our sacred institutions and founding principles is severely stretched, but they will hold 
They will. He's leaving gracelessly and in infamy. But if we trade for it, give him some brokered settlement, we'll be vulnerable to his return. And I would say to the return of others that are worse and smarter, we can't flinch. I have never been like, I've never found these kinds of appeals in the past. You know, Barack Obama should prosecute George W. Bush. George W. Bush should prosecute Bill Clinton. It always happens every eight years we hear it. I've never found them. I've never found them appealing to me. They've never like rung the bell for me. And this time I look at it and say, you know what? It, it's the only thing to do. It shouldn't become Joe Biden's creed accord, but it can't be something that we just walk away from and let the guy skate. If he's committed crimes, he's got to be prosecuted for him. Seems to me. I'm glad to have agreement from the two smartest people I know. I mean, nothing I, nothing, it's like if you wait a good way to get a Saturday going is to have the two smartest people that I know agree with me about something. So thank you for that, you guys. And thank you for taking the time. And um, it was a total delight to have you on here today. And I think you will put some people's minds at ease and also make people worry in the longer run about some stuff that we're right to be worried about and stuff that needs to happen. We've seen some of the some of the seams here, right? Some of the frayed edges. And I think that will be instructive if we do something about those things going forward. So thank you for coming on and talking about it on Hell and High Water. Hell and High Water is a podcast from the Recount and iHeartRadio. Thanks again to Lawrence Tribe and Lawrence Lessig for being here. If you like this episode of Hell and High Water, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a nice rating for us in the Apple Podcast app. It helps people find out what we're doing here. I am your host and the executive editor of The Recount, John Heilman. Grace Weinstein is a co-creator of Hell and High Water. Aaliyah Jackson engineered this podcast. Justin Chermel and Diana Roden handle the research. Sari Soffer is our producer. She's also from Northwestern. And Christian Fidel Castro-Russell is our executive producer, but not from Northwestern, so inferior to Sari Soffer. <laughs>